0: Over 7,000 fast-growing companies like Atlassian, FlowHealth, and Quora use Vanta to manage risk and prove security in real time. You can watch Vanta's on-demand video at vanta.com slash decoder to learn more. That's V-A-N-T-A slash decoder. Support for this
1: podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil I. Patel, Editor-in-Chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my new podcast about big ideas and other problems. And this episode is about problems. So a couple weeks ago, Facebook briefly turned off the ability for anyone in the world to post links from Australian news publishers. They just blocked them with a little message. It's a real thing that happened. The company, along with Google, was locked into a fight with the Australian government over something called the Media Bargaining Code, which requires social platforms and search engines to pay news publishers for linking to their work. Just linking to it. This is a big deal, it changes the way the web works. Both Google and Facebook threatened to leave Australia over the media bargaining code.
0: While we start in Australia, where Google has threatened to switch off its search engine, should a new law come into force that would make it pay for showing local news articles on its site?
1: Tensions escalated until Google basically just cut a deal with Australia's biggest news organizations paid pay them the money. And Facebook responded by turning off their access to the newsfeed entirely.
0: Facebook has blocked users in Australia from seeing and sharing news. This follows a
1: fight- After a few days, the law was slightly modified. Facebook also paid the money and access was restored. And the media bargaining code is now the law in Australia. In the meantime, there was a lot of debate about whether this was the appropriate way to regulate big tech companies, whether the bargaining code made any sense, and if the whole internet was just gonna fracture into smaller and smaller national internets. One internet for Australia, one for the United States, one for every other country in the world. What struck me about all this as we went through it is that yeah, we heard a lot from Google and from Facebook. We heard a lot from Australian government officials but we hadn't really heard from anyone in the Australian tech industry. So I called up Scott Farquhar, the co-founder and co-CEO of Atlassian, Australia's biggest tech company, and one of Australia's biggest companies, period. Atlassian is a big deal. The company is around 20 years old, and it makes Jira, which software development teams around the world all use to manage their projects. It also makes Trello, which is a super popular project management tool that you can use for all kinds of things. Notably, Atlassian has always been a global company. Even when it was just Scott and his co-founder, Mike Cannon-Brooks, their first sales were outside of Australia. That's the power of the internet. Scott and I talked about why Australia is the testbed for tech regulation around the world due to its size, location, and how its government is structured. We talked about what happened with the media bargaining code and how it will work in Australia now that it's passed. And we talked a lot about how to run a global company in an increasingly fractured world. And whether new regulations help level the playing field and increase competition, or just cement the incumbents. This conversation is mostly about policy, and I want to call out one of Scott's comments in particular. He said that having a great public policy team and being engaged with regulators is now a key business advantage. That is not how tech companies were thinking about anything, even five years ago. Keep that in mind as you listen to this conversation and as you hear about efforts to regulate tech around the world. It's just part of the business now. Okay, Scott Farquhar, co-founder and co-CEO of Atlassian. Here we go. Scott Farquhar, you're the co-founder and co-CEO of Atlassian. Welcome to Decoder. Thanks for having me. What time is it there for you?
2: It's about 10 past 11 in the morning. So you're in Sydney? On a Thursday, I think, uh, ahead of where you are.
1: Right, so it's 7 p.m. Wednesday for me, and it's 11 in the morning for you.
2: Living in the future.
1: I've never talked to somebody in tomorrow. How is it?
2: (laughs) It's great. It's really nice here. The weather's fantastic.
1: I have a number of questions about Atlassian, how you are running the company. I want to talk about the Australian tech industry, but... Really basic question. You used to be a guy who f- managed a company from a plane, right? You used to fly to San Francisco, fly around the world. How are you handling that in the pandemic?
2: It's been great on a personal level. Not taking away that COVID has had many bad stories across a whole bunch of people and companies and uh, individual lives disrupted. But from a personal perspective, I haven't had to be on a plane uh, every week or you know every month to go see people in the United States or travel around the world and see our staff. And we had our executive team that was pretty distributed previously. And some people would be in an office where they would, you know, they'd want to grab their colleagues and uh, be in an office on a meeting. And uh, that was great. But it meant we sort of had three or four meeting rooms dialed in, which is way less immersive than everyone dialed in uh, Brady Bunch style onto Zoom. And so that's been really good as well to have that sort of increased connection with staff around the world.
1: Is the time difference just impossible for you to manage? How are you solving that?
2: I think the world will move from where do you work in your office to which time zone you work in. And uh, that's something we've been living with. We've had offices in a, a dozen countries or more, so we've had that for a very long time. And so the transition hasn't been that difficult for us.
1: I feel like I could ask you future remote work questions for the entire hour. Uh, just because it is a distributed company, you, you are in Australia, but let's start at the start. Uh, tell me about Atlassian. You are one of Australia's biggest companies, you're Australia's biggest tech company, give me the, the story of Atlassian.
2: So Atlassian's mission is to unleash the potential of every team. And we do that by largely turning work into teamwork, getting your teams to collaborate better. And the teams we work most on are the teams involved in digital transformation. They're the, the makers, the developers, those people that are you know, working with software and, and beyond. We help them to be more productive and collaborative. And it started about 20 years ago in Australia with myself and my co-founder, Mike Cannon-Brooks, who we still work together as co-CEOs almost 20 years later. And we started off really building one product in Sydney called Jira, which is still our largest product that started off as a bug tracker for software developers. And there was a couple of unique things about that. One was we were in Australia, which is sort of an unusual place to start a company in 2001. And I think as a result of that, our go-to-market was very, very different. Uh, we didn't sell enterprise software in the traditional way, which was get a salesperson and sell to the CIO. Um, our experience was more consuming shareware, uh, you know, games where you was try before you buy. And so we took that approach to enterprise software and the way that JIRA got marketed and sold was on the internet. It got sold at a low price, it got sold globally, you could easily download it and install it. And that sort of started the flywheel of our business. And over time, we've grown from that to employees it's sort of the turn of the century to uh, over five thousand employees now around the world and of course our products have grown from just one in you know, jira to dozens of products um, that uh, handle all sorts of use cases around collaboration you uh,
1: recently acquired trello
2: yeah it was a couple of years ago and trello has uh, you know, i think it's 50 million accounts uh, or more uh, that we disclose and uh, millions of users using it and it's got like, incredible CSAT and people of all walks of life use it from people uh, using it on their personal life to manage information uh, all the way through to large companies. With, uh, we've got hundreds of thousands of users in large companies using Trello to manage their work. So we've got company, you know, products like Trello, JIRA, Confluence is a knowledge management product. We've got a whole range of products that help our collaboration.
1: Yeah, for a long time The Verge ran on Trello, and at one point I realized uh, we were planning our wedding in Trello, and I was like, this is too much. (laughs) I'm I'm spending too much time in this software.
2: You're not alone. 20
1: years ago, one assumes you were a much younger person. Why enterprise software for a couple 20-year-olds in Australia? It doesn't seem like, that's not in early 2000, enterprise software was not the thing, right? It was photo sharing apps or whatever. Why, Why enterprise software?
2: Mike and I both did a scholarship co-op program and in that part of that you'd work for companies as well as do your university course, like a sandwich program. And in working for these large companies in Australia, both of us realized that we didn't want to go work for a big corporation. We wanted to build something for ourselves and and build something new. And so we were more like we wanted to do a startup but we weren't really sure what uh, it would be. And the first incarnation was... Uh, that uh, we built uh, will be provided support for third-party companies so there's a company in Sweden provided an application server and uh, they were great products but terrible support (laughs) and we thought well okay well we can provide the great support from Australia um, which was a terrible business because we were providing support to people in Europe and people in United States and so you're up at three in the morning, I remember my phone was set to the loudest ringtone to wake me up and you'd sort of stumble out of bed trying to sound lucid at that stage. And that that, uh, product or I guess that service we provided was so bad that we decided we wanted to build something else. And at the turn of the century, there was just so much, I guess, blue ocean in software. And we tried uh, building, you know we built a ticketing system for managing those software customers. We built a website tracking system for tracking people moving across our website. Um, And the thing that we were really excited about was, you know, that ticketing system and turning it into a ticketing system that everyone could use because we felt that back then there was software that cost $100,000 to install um, and there was free software, open source, but there was really nothing in between. And we felt there was a huge market gap there.
1: What was the path to go from to people, okay, we've got a software product we like, now we have some customers, to where you are now, which is Australia's biggest tech company. Was there, was that a linear progression or is it fits and starts?
2: I think it's uh, the product we ended up on, Jira, has been pretty successful from the start. And in the early days, you're doing lots of hustle. Uh, and we didn't have any venture capital behind us. It was just two of us bootstrapping. And coming out of university, we didn't have really money behind us that we'd saved to bootstrap. It was really put on credit cards at that stage. And so we would do the the usual hustle. We would go to conferences around the world and um, we couldn't afford to sponsor a booth so <laughs> we would uh, turn up at a conference with business cards and uh, you know use those little beer tables um, that were usually set up around the place to open our laptop and do demos to people just in the hallway um, and in fact one of those conferences we uh, realized there was a podcast much like this that was a live streaming from one of the sessions and so we stood at the entrance and we pasted uh, or you know got stickers and put them on the beer so we went to the local beer shop got cases of beer. Then as people walked in, we put a Lassian sticker on the beer can and gave it to every person in the audience. And so that was sort of the guerrilla marketing that we did in the, in the early days. And then over time, we sort of built the flywheel up, um, obviously hustling customers. Um, and then one day we got a fax from American Airlines. And I asked Mike, had he been working with American Airlines? And he said, no, and neither had I. And so we're like, wow, this this really works. They'd faxed through their <laughs> credit card number, and we'd never heard from them. And we're like, this software business works when people send you money for you know effectively doing nothing. Um, you know, obviously, we have spent a lot of time on the products, but we hadn't had to hustle every individual customer, and that was probably a turning point for us.
1: So that, that kind of brings me to the the larger set of questions I want to ask, which is, you know, as tech companies get bigger, their relationships to the countries they're in and the countries they operate in get more complicated. There's all this discussion of regulation. But American Airlines is an American com- company. You were in Australia. They just faxed you an order, and you suddenly had a customer in America. How quickly did you go global? Because that the promise of the internet for a software company is that you have a, a global market from the first day,
2: right? Totally. I think our, our first uh, sale was in the UK. We did a few more in uh, Europe, and uh, particularly Benelux and Nordic countries. And then I think we had some uh, sales in the US. And I don't think we got an Australian company, uh, you know, in our first 10 sales. And, and so you're global from day one. And I think it's interesting to see how that changes, because I, I think we're seeing a new breed of companies. If you, if you go back maybe 50 or 70 years, companies employed people locally. Effectively, they, they, they sold their goods locally. Uh, they were governed by a government that was elected by people locally. If they polluted they, you know, polluted locally, and of course, they, you know, that was the place that their employees would be working in, or you know, the important environment that they kind of existed in. And if you go back to the 70s, we moved to the sort of mega corporation or the the global corporation that sort of disconnected a lot of that local thing and then opened up supply chains and other areas and sort of disconnected that um, that link between a company and a physical location. And I think, you know, as Atlassian, We've got staff in, uh, you know, dozens of countries around the world. We're headquartered in the UK. Our biggest, uh, you know, we sort of feel like we're Australian-backed. Most of our customers are in the US, um, so we're a global company by default, um, and uh, we be- we benefit from that. We get to employ people in all those places and sell to people in all those places. But we're also governed by laws in all these countries, both employment laws and you know how we sell uh, in those countries. And so I think that's just fascinating to see how the this- the world evolves.
1: Before we came on you know I was doing the research I watched some of your other interviews. I noticed that when you are on the Australian media they they glow they're very, they're very proud of Atlassian as a big Australian tech success story. Do you think of Atlassian as an Australian company right? You just described it as a global company but I, in the local coverage there's a there, there is a national pride around your company. Is
2: that how you feel? Atlassian is the largest technology company in Australia. Um, and the largest, I think, employer of people in technology in, in Australia. And we've got Australian heritage and we're really proud of that. And I think that uh, if you went to any of our offices around the world, you would uh, you would feel like it has some Australian roots and Australian heritage, even if it you know lives in many different cultures uh, that that we cater towards. So I, I'm, I'm proud of our Australian heritage. We want to do as much as we can to support the Australian technology industry. And I think that um, you know, because we op- and opened our office in Australia first, we got to tap into an Australian culture and community. Um, we weren't competing for talent with, in technology companies in the US. And so we probably had more of a captive audience for our staff in the early days, which meant we had great tenure and that helped us build, you know, amazing products. So I think we've benefited a lot from Australia. And selfishly, I, I live in Australia. I have three children here in Australia and I want to make sure that Australia keeps up with uh, the global technology sort of arms race or, you know, that, we, that we're that we all in. And uh, Australia produces between 1% and 2% of the world's GDP, gross domestic product. And if we want to continue our quality of life, we need to produce between 1% and 2% of the world's software in order for us to keep <laughs> up with that. And so uh, that's kind of why, you know, I'm, I'm a bit of an evangelist for the technology industry in Australia.
1: But there's a little bit of a tension there, right? The,
2: the new breed of companies like Atlassian,
1: like Facebook, like Google, you name it are inherently global companies. They are conceived of that way, they begin that way, Atlassian began that way, and now we are seeing some of this nationalistic spirit, hey, our country has to do well. In the United States, one of the reasons I want to talk to you is my frame is the United States, which is a very complicated place to live most days lately. The clash between Facebook and Google and the Australian government seemed asymmetric because those companies are really big, but even in just talking to you for 15 minutes, you're saying, I want Australia to succeed. What is the dynamic there? What is the balance there? How, how should I think about that?
2: Um, well, I think it's interesting for your audience to know that a lot of the things that are happening in Australia are a bit of a test bed for how things may end up in the world. And uh, because of our regulatory regime, like we are a parliamentary democracy, so we don't really have a sort of third system of government and executive branch like the legislature does, you know, both run the company, country and enact their laws. And so that means a lot of wars can happen faster and, and can be uh, enacted a lot faster than they can in other jurisdictions. We're also a relatively small company country so you know 25 million people is a what's more than many other countries and so we can I guess move a little bit faster. And so what you've seen in Australia is a bit of a testbed of legislation on a whole bunch of different areas, whether that is in encryption and privacy, sort of antitrust involving you know media with uh, big technology, Um, whether that is, you know, skilled migration is is a big issue for us. Um, There's a lot of things that are being tested out here in Australia that I think are having global implications.
1: We're going to pause right there to take a break, but when we come back, I want to talk about the News Media Bargaining Code.
0: Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. Here's the story of innovation
1: told in five words. Try. Explore. Connect. Pivot. Transform. See what happened there?
0: As soon as Connect entered the story, innovation became achievable. That's why Deloitte works with clients and tech alliances to bring together the people, ideas, and technologies to overcome, solve, and, of course, transform. Connect to what matters for innovation. Start at Deloitte.com US Innovate. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
1: We're back with Decoder. I said before the break that we were going to talk about the News Media Bargaining Code. As a reminder, this is the legislation that caused both Google and Facebook to threaten to leave Australia altogether. Ultimately, they didn't, but there were some fireworks along the way, and it felt like it could have gone in either direction. Obviously, I watched this all happen from the United States, but I really wanted to get Scott's perspective since he runs a tech company in Australia. Let's talk about the the news media bargaining code. This is kind of an inflection point, I think, in regulation around the world, um, particularly as it relates to Facebook and Google. You're sitting there as one of the co-CEOs of Australia's biggest tech company. How are you watching this battle between the country you're in and the American tech giants?
2: It's been fascinating here in Australia and Alassian doesn't have really anything to gain or lose in this particular instance uh, directly, but we are involved because we want to make sure that we live in a country where the rules uh, make sense in a country where we can attract great people to come work in the technology industry and where um, the wars don't adversely impact kind of the way the technology gets developed in Australia and you know adversely maybe gets those jobs go elsewhere. And so that's where we come at it from, not because we directly uh, benefit or uh, hurt by this. And uh, you know, to sort of further do what you said, it's in Australia and probably globally we all recognise the need for a uh, free press, like you know, free media that uh, you know is vibrant. But globally, media's you know traditional method of funding being advertising has been eroded by um, classifieds. You know, you, you don't go into the newspaper to buy a car anymore you use you know now you buy that from a you know we have sales in we have realestate.com.au so those places have you know pulled a lot of the media dollars but also google and facebook are now you know it, it benefiting i guess in terms of just advertising dollars not necessarily from news but from advertising dollars and so the government has said how do we have a vibrant and uh media ecosystem that is free and fair that we all benefit from? Um, and how do we fund that as a country now what they looked around and said well you know google and facebook are making a lot of money Um, they're also happening to be using news links you know in their products and so in somewhat i think conflating two different issues they said well they must be benefiting from the news and they should have to pay a lot for that benefit and uh, so that what happened is the media bargaining code said well google and facebook are large they're you know maybe not monopolies, but pretty close uh, to it in terms of uh, digital <laughs> advertising. And so it would be unfair for any individual news company to try and negotiate with a monopoly, which I think is is totally fair, right? Like the sort of mum and pop news company with, you know, 50 people that produces news isn't the sort of person that's going to be able to negotiate with Google. Um, on the flip side, uh, Facebook and Google have said actually that uh, news itself is one of many things on our platform and even if news disappeared, like it wouldn't make a huge difference to the engagement we have with our platforms, and uh, and so that was where the stalemate ended up. Um, and what happened is Google realized that pulling out of uh, the country, which is what they would have to do, the way this the way this code is written, is that you can't just turn off news. You actually have to turn off news globally to every person, um, which is very difficult uh, for Google to do. And for Facebook, it was a little bit easier because people actually post news in Facebook, like Facebook doesn't scrape the web in any way. And so we got to see two different reactions to the government as to how that happened. And so at the end of the day, what's what's ended up as the compromise is that this law has gone through, um, which basically mandates you know, named companies to have to go and negotiate. However, no company has been named yet. <laughs> so even though Facebook and Google have done all these deals, they've really done those deals to prevent being named in um, by the, uh, you know, effectively the Minister for Communications. The problem we've ended up with is that uh, um, at any stage that Minister for Communications could threaten to name them and bring them back to the bargaining table again and again and again. And so you know, time will tell how that plays out. But uh, you know, if you came up to an election. And the government wasn't getting favourable news coverage. You know, would it, would they uh, be able to effectively direct dollars from you know old school or two old school media companies from technology by threatening and saber rattling? And so we've sort of ended up with a, a very interesting um, stalemate at the moment uh, as a result of this bill.
1: Atlassian basically said this: this bill is not a great idea. You have a statement of principles up on your website about how you think regulations should work. How do you balance? You know, in, you're in Australia. Facebook and Google are gigantic U.S. companies. They do own basically the entire digital advertising market. How do you square all of this? As you think about, well, the next generation of companies are inherently global.
2: There's a couple of things. Uh, one is as a global company um, based in Australia, like our Australian reputation matters to our business, and we want to bring more people here. So we spend a lot of time thinking about how do we have good laws that uh, that get made. And what we found is that politicians until maybe five years ago, they didn't really understand what technology was or that there's a vibrant industry there. Um, it's, it's amazing when you look through the newspapers, how many photo ops there are with politicians in a high visibility vest, you know, visiting some factory. And, and kind of that's their view of where jobs come from. And we're like, well, the jobs of the future aren't necessarily they're still building things, creating things. But those things are software or they're digital goods. And, you know, there's less opportunity for photo ops You kind of in the high visibility a jacket, but that's where the jobs are going to come from because you all those- You should
1: just start giving people the jacket when they visit the office.
2: <laughs> Walk through the office space with a high visit jacket, <laughs> you know, watch out for that desk in the corner. Um, but, but that's what's happening is all these, you know, all these jobs are becoming digital. Software is disrupting every industry. So our job as a, a company is to help educate our politicians on this. And so we're trying to find people that can speak- both languages. So we've, you know, we've got a head of policy, David Masters, who came from Microsoft and, uh, you know, he, he can speak both technology and, you know, po- politics. We've defined our principles, um, you know, where effectively how do we engage with with, with uh, policy makers and some of those principles are things like, you know, treat the ailment, don't kill the patient, consult early, consult often, those types, uh, those types of things to make sure that we kind of have a principles for how we think laws should be made. And if I could ask for one thing, it's that, you know, but both technology invests the time to understand the political landscape that politicians operate in and uh, politicians spend time to understand the technical landscape uh, that technology companies operate within. And I'll give you an example of the second. Um, we had a, a different bill, which was uh, in Christchurch, we had a terrorist attack um, uh, maybe one or two years ago. And it was really bad because one of the terrorists live streamed the terrorist attack whilst it was happening on Facebook. And, and horrible, no one should have to Ever turn on Facebook and and, and see something of that being live streamed. But the way the law was written um, meant that effectively, uh, you know, you had to prevent a live stream of a terrorist attack if it was being filmed by the terrorist. Um, Of course, if it's being filmed by someone else, it was actually fine, according to the law. And if you're a sort of a person trying to determine with machine learning algorithms, like how to do this, like it's really Difficult. Like, I, I, I don't know how Facebook would do it apart from banning all live streams. Um, and this law was effectively conceived and passed within a week um, of, of this tragedy. And so you like um, agree we should do something, but it feels like this law was rushed in. And I don't know actually it's going to prevent anything happening in the future because actually complying with it is, is near impossible.
1: This is one of the balances that doesn't exist in the United States, for example. Uh, our government is very slow and often deadlocked. The Australian government, it seems very fast and often maybe too fast. But isn't that better? Like isn't it better to to have a government response and say, here's how we think the tech industry should work? I mean, that law eventually was changed. I know there was a law about encryption that was eventually changed in Australia. Isn't that a, a better cadence to be on? Like speaking as like a from like product language, that seems like an iterative cadence where you're trying to find the fit as opposed to doing nothing forever.
2: Uh, I think that I do love the speed of the which we can do things and engage, but it has to be in engagement with industry. And so when things are rushed through within a, in, a, in a week, there clearly not any engagement happens. Um, a good example was the encryption bill. Um, there is a trade-off, as everyone in technology understands, between privacy and security. Um, if you use the telephone in Australia... Uh, your telephone line can be tapped according to you know a communications act that happened in 1970 that bound telecommunication providers to allow governments to you know listen in on phone calls if they have you know a warrant and those types of things Now people using end-to-end encrypted uh, devices like you know if you're using signal or whatsapp um, you know the government can't listen in on those and so the government can't prevent any terrorist attacks that might be coordinated using uh, those those tools on the other side consumers want, uh, you know, encryption and privacy to make sure the government can't listen in on their messages or even if they, those messages, you know, can't be seen at a later date by, by a third party. And there's a, a fundamental trade-off between those two. And Australia passed a effectively an anti-encryption bill that said the government can uh, legislate, well, I mean legislate, can designate um, any uh, company and they have to put in backdoors for the government in order for the government to be able to listen in. And there's uh, you know, things in the bill that says, well, that should not introduce a systemic weakness uh, into that particular platform, but it's not defined what systemic weakness means. And so um, you know that's up to the eye of the beholder. And uh, again, most people would say encryption is either it's encrypted or it's not. There's not sort of a halfway point where it's half encrypted or it's encrypted with a backdoor or some keys there. And so though that bill has had subsequently to the bill being passed, so it's currently law. It's had parliamentary inquiries to go look at how to fix it up. Um, politicians, once they've sort of fixed the, the thing the first time, there's not as much energy in politics to go back and revisit something and make it right. Um, there just really isn't sort of much benefit to politicians to make those laws be great as opposed to just get them across the line. And so uh, we're still waiting on that law to be adjusted and improved. Um, and even things like having an independent judicial review and um, there strong recommendations haven't come through yet and so we i think we've seen in the, in the US potentially like with you know Pfizer warrants and other things out there that you know independent eyes and independent review make a make a great difference to the public's ability to have confidence in these areas and so um, even though it was passed in 2018 uh, it hasn't been changed yet
1: how does that affect how you think about building products right there is a, a regulatory apparatus that is doing things They might pass laws. It might be a while before those laws are enacted or improved or even enforced. But Atlassian is still building products in Australia or shipping products in Australia. Like, does that feel like an unstable relationship? Does that feel like something you can count on? Uh, How does that affect what you actually make?
2: Well, as as a global company, it's not just Australia's laws that affect us. It is the laws in every country that we operate in. And if we just said uh, Australia, the US, and Europe as three uh, unique examples, Europe imp- introduced GDPR, which is the General Data Protection Regime and uh, regulations, and, uh, and and that has been around privacy. Like and but the laws in the US and Australia don't correspond with GDPR, and so we've had to do specific things just for Europe, and in many cases there are areas of conflict um, between those two jurisdictions. So there used to be. A uh, privacy shield, which would go between the U.S. and Europe, to effectively say that you know one one state's uh, laws or one nation's laws will apply in certain ways to the other nation, which allows companies to operate and work across both areas. But those um, you know those laws, I think, Privacy Shield was recently struck down by the Supreme Court, and so now as a, com- a company, we really operate in an uncertain environment, and so that's the thing that is probably the the hardest overhead on, on companies is that the uncertain environment across different jurisdictions where everyone wants to make their laws, and in many cases they are conflicting. Um, in Europe's GDPR would basically say I must do end-to-end encryption because I can't share private data and Australia's law says I must share private data with the government under certain conditions. It, it makes it very difficult to build one product globally. And like all regulation um, that provides a sort of a, uh, tax on everything. Um, it really benefits incumbents and large companies. So Atlassian's um, well, getting to that stage now where we're larger and we probably benefit because it would hurt some of our upstart challenges to come have to have all this overhead that we can amortize over a large platform and a large number of products. Um, but I, I just worry about what that means for innovation globally. Um, as an example, Clubhouse, which has you know, come to the fore in the US, um, it violates GDPR because it leverages your telephone <laughs> address book to to share things, um, it, it already can't use Twitter's uh, you know uh, network. It can't use Facebook's network because those are closed. So it used your phone books network, but that means Clubhouse could never have been created in Europe. Uh, and uh, you know, I think that's just an interesting uh, state of the world we end up in, where the, the wars are so conflicting across different jurisdictions, and what potentially walking down which startups can exist.
1: Yeah, it's funny. It- I, was, I was saying that we planned our wedding in Trello Clubhouse. I wouldn't have been so unhappy if. They had been kept away from my phone book because I got. A, they sent me a notification that our wedding planner was talking about something on Clubhouse. I was like, I haven't <laughs> talked to her in a decade. Like, why would I? And there's a push and a pull there, right?
2: But that's an interesting part is that because they could only use your phone network, it was the only thing available to them. If they'd used your Facebook friends or your Twitter network, they would have ended up with a much more high quality network, and you would have had a better customer experience. But because the laws or even those companies prohibited that, and well, actually, those companies prohibited it because of the wars that happened. You know, Facebook with Cambridge Analytica used to actually share your network with everyone. And people thought that was a great thing until someone stole those data and, and used it in a nefarious way. And now they don't share it with anyone. And so we, we are just sort of seeing the, the impact that the regulatory environment that everyone operates in. Now we're seeing that in actually how products get built.
1: So this brings me to the question that I ask uh, every executive that comes on the show and the, the journey you've described is starting at Lassie and now being the co-CEO of a large company. There were two of you. You were excited to get a fax with a credit card number from American Airlines. Now we are here talking about a globally fractured internet, how to build and ship products in that internet. What is your decision-making process like? How do you evaluate all of these things? What is that process, What has that development been like for you?
2: There are two things that I consider when making decisions. One is our uh, our mission as a company, and our mission is to unleash the potential of every team, and that factors into you know how we think about things long term, the areas we need to build for, and the other area that takes a, that we take into account is uh, our values as a company, and we have five distinct values that every one of our employees uh, you know knows and live every single day, including open company, no bullshit, which is one of our you know values <laughs> to talk about transparency and working together. Um, another one is, you know, be the change you seek. Um, we, we expect our employees to, um, you know, take uh, an active role in shaping Atlassian. And so between the mission um, that drives where we're going and our values that kind of drive how we're going to get there, like that, that sort of factors through every single decision.
1: Put that into practice for me. David Masters, your head of policy, who, by the way, the audience should know he's on the call on mute. He's in the background here. He comes to you and says, Rupert Murdoch and Sundar Pichai and Mark Zuckerberg are in a fight. With the australian legislature we should do or say something how do you evaluate that and guide his course of action as your head of policy
2: well if we don't unleash the potential of every team uh, uh, one of the things we need to do is have uh, firstly great staff who are going to come and work for us at atlassian and we need to operate in a world where we have laws that allow us to do that and so for us like we've got a you know, sort of the derivation of that is that uh, policy framework about how and where we engage. And there are certain areas where we as a company engage proactively. You know, we have these principles that sort of say, right, we're gonna proactively engage in things. There's certain things we'll engage in reactively. So we really put it through a lens of how do we help the world? Like, and so we've engaged proactively on debates such as you know, same-sex marriage in Australia. Um, actually, Australia was behind the US in uh, in legislating that. Um, and Atlassian was a big proponent of helping um, you know us get there because we believe those sorts of things really matter to our employees. Um, and we've had other areas where you know we don't proactively engage, like we haven't sat down and looked at the competition framework for Australia. But when something happens, we spend a lot of time educating people. And so that all fits through that lens of how we as a company can make an impact in the world.
1: Let me put a, a cynical hypothetical decision in front of you. You're a wealthy tech executive. You're in Australia. You are part of a, a growing and vibrant Australian tech economy. Google says, if you pass this law, we're leaving. Did it ever occur to you to think, well, I should just invest in a couple of founders to build an Australian Google to immediately replace that product? Because that seemed like a very natural opportunity at that moment.
2: Uh, it's interesting, in, in fact... That's almost what happened, except Microsoft uh, stepped into that fray. And so, um, it's actually interesting. Uh, ben Thompson from Stratechery, and I'm sure he stole it from somewhere else previously. Talks about strategy credits. You know, there's mm-hmm. areas where because of your strategy, you know, there's a strategy tax, uh, which you know impacts your business on, you know, where your sort of local maximas aren't reached because you're trying for a global maxima, and the strategy credit. And in this case, Microsoft, uh, Microsoft Bing was a you know, BitPlayer, like sub 10% market share in Australia. Um, I don't know a single person that was using it. I'm sure (laughs) it could be an amazing search engine, just not quite as amazing as Google. And uh, when Microsoft heard that Google was threatening to leave Australia, they called our prime minister and said, we would happily... Uh, live under any regulatory framework you want to come up with. Uh, you know, please make it as onerous as possible Like in, you know, to make Google leave so that we can come in and save the day and be the white knight as the only search engine in Australia. And uh, you know, that was very effective from Microsoft. Uh, I think that really got Google back to the bargaining table. And uh, you know, from Microsoft's perspective, um, they don't make much money from Bing comparatively, and so they would have been very happy to, uh, to shut Google down in Australia and, and take that market share. So we have started to see the sort of geopolitics, you know, multi uh, 3D chess game uh, come out where people and companies are actually using uh, politics and legislation as uh, competitive weapons.
1: Uh, I'm imagining Brad Smith at Microsoft being like, wait, we just brought Google back to the table. Like, that's not what we wanted to do here.
2: Well, you see why Brad Smith is um, at the seat of the table at Microsoft. You know, he's on the executive team. Our head of policy, um, Erica Fisher, who runs all of our legal and HR and compliance and policy, um, she sits on the executive team because what you're starting to see is that public policy is becoming a strategic business consideration. Um, and of course, you know, as Alassian is the largest Australian technology company. Our job is to help that local ecosystem. Um, but it is something that, you know, is as strategic a, an asset as, you know, your products or your go-to-market these days.
1: Australia in the world is... In a physically interesting position, right? You are close to China. You have these deep cultural connections to the UK, to to America. Do you have a, Do you think you perceive that geopolitical fight that is brewing between all the big countries in the world differently than sort of your average American tech company CEO?
2: Well, a couple of things on that. Uh, one is that there's actually a book called The Tyranny of Distance uh, that was written about uh, Australia. And if you go way back, like Australia was a colonized. Uh, a country, and they've got to work out what to trade. Um, unlike India, we didn't really have a spice trade where we were, you know, trading stuff back. We couldn't sell lumber back; didn't make any sense. And there was really nothing to sell back to the UK until we uh, created. Um, well, we imported sheep, and effectively, there's <laughs> a saying that Australia was built on the sheep's back. And uh, why is that? It's well, wool was the first thing that was light enough and valuable enough to be worthwhile shipping all the way back to England. In order to pay for the spades and shovels and other things that the you know the Australia uh, economy needed to keep growing, and so like, we've our sort of our geography has actually shaped the Australian psyche and the Australian economy over a very long period of time, and it's only maybe I think in the last ten years we've shut down all the local car manufacturers in Australia because it didn't make sense for us to build cars here and then ship them on ships around the world to these geographically disparate and remote locations. And uh, so what is really exciting for us as a country is now with these digital goods that we can um, we can build software or Cochlear, which is an ear implant company, even though they don't, you know, ship you know something virtually, they ship something very wide and very easy to uh, to do like, you know, they can build and ship something around the world and that's how Lassian came to be is that, you know, if we were trying to build physical goods from Australia, we wouldn't have survived. So that's actually built into the Australian psyche from, from very early on. Now, to get back to your, your question about, like, how do we see geopolitics as a result of this? Um, I think Australia is unique because we, our largest trading partner is China. Um, our largest, I think, sort of cultural partner would be the United States. Um, and as a company, Atlassian, you know, sees we sell to almost every single country in the world. So we get to see a unique perspective of how that all plays out. And I would say from our vantage point or my personal vantage point, the um, increasing parochialization of the web or splintering it into a Chinese web, a European web, a United States web, you know, an Australian web um, is not good for the world because these economies of scale that we used to get where, you know, effectively, 2,000 engineers could build a product that scales to the whole world. Now we're going to need 20,000 engineers to build that same product 10 different times. And that's not a really good use of uh, kind of of resources. And so that that worries me. Um, And, you know, if governments lose trust in each other's regulatory functions because they have different approaches to data, security, privacy, then you're going to see these roadblocks emerge.
1: We're going to take another break. But when we come back, we're going to talk about the splinternet. We're back with Scott Farquhar. We were just talking about how different countries around the world have different regulations for tech and the web. Those fractured regulations make it harder for companies to build one product and deploy it globally. But a fully splintered internet, or what we at The Verge call the splinternet, hasn't arrived yet. I wanted to understand how Scott was thinking about this as he grows Atlassian. You mentioned the splintering internet. The phrase that we use The Verge is splinternet. Do you see that actually happening? Is that a perceived danger or is it a real and growing danger?
2: I think it's a real and growing danger. Uh, I don't think we have seen it being implemented in uh, companies just yet. But also by the time it happens, it will be very difficult to undo because the reason it will happen is because the different governments will have entrenched their particular viewpoint. So when the Australian governments won this, you know, in, in their mind, won a battle over Facebook and Google... Uh, and then Europe does it a different way, there's no incentive for them to go back and then harmonize the two different approaches. And so then suddenly Google, instead of having a lot of employees in one place that can build stuff globally, are just going to have to start building it two different ways. Um, You know, and like, so you won't notice it to start with. It'll just be the number of employees dedicated to a country or a particular jurisdiction goes up. And that's sort of a deadweight loss for society. Um, And probably the biggest worry is it further entrenches incumbents.
1: I hear you in the, in the incumbents saying That's a, a, that's an argument that I think is well taken. But let me push you on the loss to society point. Over a year ago, pre-pandemic, in a different lifetime, uh, I had an economist on the Vergecast. His name is Thomas Philippon, and he was saying one of the one of the big issues in the American economy, in particular, is that software companies make more and more and more money, but they actually contribute less and less to the real economy. They 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 hire fewer people. So if GM wants to make a hundred thousand more cars. They have to they have to hire X number more people. They have to purchase X number more car seats. Those suppliers will have to hire more people. There's just a net increase to the economy, to the productivity of a company like GM. Google wants to ship another billion web pages. They have to hire three more people in a new data center, and that's it. And there's no net gain to the economy. Isn't wouldn't part of the argument here be... OK, well, if, if Google has to build a European Google, and an Australian Google, they might just hire more people in Australia. They might bring more senior software engineers to Australia to build a version of Google that is local and responsive to the needs of the people in Australia.
2: I think every government wants more jobs in their jurisdiction. That, that doesn't necessarily <laughs> mean that it's, uh, it's good overall as a, as a maximum. I think if you go back and say, well, we used to deliver a lot of CDs to music shops Uh, And, you know, there are a lot of jobs in people that would press the CD, pack the CD, put them in cars, drive them around, a lot of people in retail that was involved in selling CDs. And yet we buy all our music online. Um, You know, should we go back to having people (laughs) doing all that just to create jobs? Like, no, actually, it's way more convenient. And we actually sell way more music. And we've got more musicians producing music than ever before. And so um, it's sort of what jobs do we want, um, and there's a I think there's a big discussion to have around how the S is divided in the world. So you know, taxation policies and redistribution policies, whether that is universal basic income, whether that is taxation, whether it is a social safety net, whether it's free healthcare. There's plenty of different ways in which governments can redistribute money from wealthy to into less wealthy. Um, but I don't think creating jobs, uh, you know, for job's sake, the old Depression era, where it's dig a hole and then fill it in to create jobs, um, is the right way to think about it. We've got to think about, you know, kind of what's the best experience we want, and then, great, how do we redistribute that or create new jobs in this new economy?
1: How much time? I mean, we have spent a lot of time talking about policy, and to be fair, I invited you here to talk about policy, but you just said public policy is a strategic advantage for a company like yours. How much time do you spend on products versus policy?
2: As a CEO, I always wish I could spend more time on products. Uh, that's my love and my passion <laughs> is, you know, building stuff for our customers. And our customers don't buy our policy. Our, our customers don't buy our packaging or our pricing. Our customers buy and use our products. And so that's where I want to, you know, spend most of my time. Um, our senior executive team, um, you know, I would say that, let's say GDPR, for example, for example, was um, – it was named internally something around the sort of generalized destruction of product roadmaps um, because (laughs) that war came into into place and every person in product had to stop whatever they were doing that, you know, that they had on their roadmap to provide for customers globally and instead had to pivot. And we had hundreds uh, of people building these data protection regimes. And I, I love for privacy, I think it's a great, a great thing, but it wasn't, top of the list our customers were, were asking for. And so sort of having a, a state and a, a, a statement or a, at least a voice in these discussions to make sure that these laws are implemented in the right way that achieves the policy outcomes, like, you know, kind of achieves the way that, um, you know, th- that politicians and again, politicians are elected by people. So ultimately it's the will of the people, what gets done. Um, and so how do we do that in a way that actually makes it the best way for technology uh, firms to do this? And, uh, that's, I guess, why I spend time on the public policy is I don't pretend to know better than politicians what the world wants, like, you know, kind of what voters want. That's their job. But in terms of translating that into laws that can be implemented to achieve the outcomes, I think that's where uh, we in technology can help. You have a
1: co-CEO, which is uh, most companies don't have co-CEOs. What's the split between you and Mike?
2: Oh, well, in, in a good day, he does 80% of the work and uh, you know, I get 80% <laughs> of the credit. So um, that, that's the way we'd like it to go. Um but but practically we've all done both of us have done every job in the business from you know cleaning the bins out when we first started at you know to running every department and uh, today and we, we sort of mix it up every every other year or so today i run the go to market functions and the sort of gna functions so legal hr and finance and Mike runs all the product uh, functions, so uh, all the product management, the design, the engineering, and so forth. And so that's how we, we split it up, but we've, we've done everything at various stages.
1: Well, the reason I ask, that, that seems like the natural split, right? There's the, the sort of policy side of the house and the, the product side of the house that goes to the, the other question I asked you. But is there a time that you made a trade-off in the product because of a policy concern?
2: GDPR is probably a great example of where where we have done that as sort of the the broadest reaching, um, you know, sort of legislation. We're now looking at um, data residency is an interesting one. And companies and and laws are such that data needs to physically reside in a data centre, you know, on that country's land, in order for it to be applicable to certain rules. And It's a little bit backward looking because, you know, kind of where the bits physically live on disk is, you know, kind of a weird way to think about the cloud, which most people don't think when they open their browser, they don't really think about the physical location of the bits. But from a policy perspective, that's the way the world has ended up. Um, However, things like Privacy Shield in Australia, there's the Cloud Act between uh, US and uh, Australia that allows certain things to happen under those data residency regimes. And Again, the ability and what we need to put in data centers, what data needs to reside in different locations. Um, there's things like identity, which kind of need to reside everywhere because you, you, know, you don't sort of say I need to log into Australia. You say I want to log in and then we redirect you to Australia. So all those sort of wars about you know how data is protected in each country and how it can be shared between countries really affect concrete product decisions and uh, the efforts that we put in.
1: Jira is uh, it's used everywhere. It's used by the biggest companies in the world. My understanding of big companies as customers and clients is that they are themselves very demanding, especially when they are themselves global. How do you balance? Okay, the Fortune 50 all uses Jira. Those are big contracts. Here's what they want from us. We might have to tell them no because of the GDPR.
2: As as a company, we we sell from you know ten person teams to hundred thousand person teams, and so you're right. We 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 run the full gamut of that. At the top end, it's not a matter of saying, no, I can't serve you because of these laws. <laughs> like, it is a matter of how do we actually you know, comply with these laws. And there's a company in Australia um, that are looking to use our, our cloud product and you know, because of the regulation, they're saying, well, we, we ourselves operate in 13 different countries and before we can sign off on your cloud product, we need to get sign off from our regulatory authorities in 13 different countries to do that. And again, if they all, I, I imagine the laws governing this are pretty similar across the board, but the fact that they're different in 13, even if they're 1% different means they need to get sign off in all those different locations. And again, I think as a technology industry, we could do a better job of, you know, sort of helping these governments harmonize their laws or interpret them and say, well, all cloud companies interpret the Australian law this way. So how can we standardize on that? And that will make it easier for people to consume that. It would make it easier for governments to, you know, sort of harmonize their laws. So there's definitely things we can do on our side. Um, but I think there's also things governments can do to sort of just just take the same what someone else does or say, I'll do it your way. Um, in fact, it's interesting. We have a, a neighbor uh, called New Zealand. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know what it's like in the US, like in New Zealand, anything that's great, that's New Zealand. We claim it as Australian. Maybe everything good that comes out of Canada gets claimed as American. But <laughs> Uh, yeah. we, we, we do that in, in, for all New Zealand. And one of the things they've done is a lot of their wars, because they're a much smaller country, a couple of million people, many of their wars just say, we do what Australia does. Um, so, for example, drug testing, you know, kind of the equivalent of the FDA in the US, New Zealand doesn't have one. They really just say, we'll do what Australia does. Um, and, you know, I think the world would be a lot simpler if, you know, we could do that more often um, and harmonize wars across different jurisdictions.
1: So I obviously have a very US-centric view. I grew up here. I passed the bar exam here. That's my entire worldview is from the United States. You're describing something the United States would never do, right? Like the United States would just never be like, we're just going to do what Australia does. Like it, it is impossible. Do you see that beyond New Zealand? Do you see that happening in other places?
2: I think if we can, you know, there's a lot of things we do, you know, harmonize on, we've got, you know, the Paris Accord uh, for climate change and, You could argue whether it's perfect or not, but we got 200 countries around the world to come together all effectively to have a standardised measurement system and a standardised targets. And we can have a whole different discussion about how Australia, you know, is doing that. And I think we've we've bent the rules slightly in terms of how we've interpreted them. But I think if we can do that on climate change, you know, really complicated uh, things, then... There are other areas where we can put together international bodies to work out what is the, you know, the union or, you know, of of all the different laws and things people are considering. Data privacy is is a good example. Um, I would settle for one Data Privacy Act across all of the United States, um, let alone internationally, (laughs) because you've got one in Europe, you don't have one US wide, and California is looking to do one. And then of course, there'll be other states that will follow in California's uh, footsteps. And so, you know, if we can harmonize those things, you know, the Cloud Act between Australia and the U.S. is a good good one. Privacy Shield between, you know, U.S. and EU, which, where we try and harmonize laws. So I, I'm optimistic that there are big things we can do there.
1: As an Australian CEO, you're obviously raising your children in Australia. It's remarkable that you know about the law change in California at a state-by-state state level. How distracting is the United States to you as an Australian CEO running a global company?
2: There's a couple of aspects on that. One is employees. And I will say that um, not just legislation, but, you know, it's been a very tumultuous time in the US over the last 12 months. And we have about half of our staff globally there. And a lot of them have had to go through a pandemic, you know, very difficult racial tensions, um, you know, that, that have happened, a very tumultuous election um, that, that has happened. And so I'm just really feeling for everyone uh, in the US at the moment, uh, in terms of like, uh, what they've had to go through over the last 12 months. And as a CEO, I'm responsible and try and do our best to, to help that. Um, and then, you know, the United States is beyond that, a, has a big influence on the world. And, you know, a very large uh, customer base of ours, you know, sort of about just under half our customers are, are in the US. And so uh, that, you know, I'm very acutely aware of what happens at a sort of politics level, um, and at a, uh, you know, regulatory and a competition level over there. When
1: you say acutely aware, do you do you get a briefing book in Trello every morning that says, here's what the
2: United States government did overnight? It is funny. I um, When I got my first investment from Excel, so this is sort of 2009, 2010, and I would fly over there and I'd go into the, the offices. And I remember one day, I think this is very early on, um, there was a revolving door of CEOs at Twitter. I can't remember who was in or who was out right then. And um, I was in a meeting and uh, I just brought that up. And they were sort of amazed, like how how did you find that out in Australia? <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, how do you how do you know? I was like, well, I read the same news articles you read. <laughs> like, it's not like you were in the Twitter boardroom, like and understood it firsthand. Like you you found out about it from the same communication channels. And so, I don't think there is a, a difficulty these days being the expert on any uh, local area because all that information is available online. And so we can be just as informed about what's happening in the US from Australia. And the same thing, I think I'd advise people in the US to be uh, up to date with what's happening in Australia, given how, you know, it's sort of a test bed for legislation that may come down the line. And I think we've already seen this. Um, just today, uh, we saw, uh, I think it was Congress, basically um, uh, talk about a bill where they would allow media companies to collectively bargain and, uh, you know, against big technology. And um, in some ways, that would be a better solution than what we have in Australia, because then if all the media companies collectively bargain and say, well, our news is worth X and Google says, no, it's not, and they shut them off, well, then that sounds like it's actually pretty fair because you know they've equally bargained on both sides. So, um, But I think that would not have come to the fore if it wasn't for Australia's legislation sort of paving the way. So um, I, I think people globally should be. Think you know, kind of looking to uh, uh, to Australia and other countries that are enacting legislation as really a stepping stone to what might happen locally.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. All of the antitrust action in the United States began with that media collective bargaining activity, which is really you can it has grown from that to something much bigger. Also, I have to compliment you. You said today, but it is tomorrow for you. So well done. <laughs> uh, I would have not have gotten that that time zone right. I want to end by asking about something that is much harder to see, right? I can go read Australian news coverage. You can come read American news coverage. It is very hard for us to see what is happening in China. You said China is Australia's biggest trading partner. I'm assuming Atlassian does business in China.
2: Uh, We do a small amount of business in China. Um, It is, uh, yeah, a a small amount of business. It's not not zero, but it's uh, not a a huge amount compared to, I guess, the population uh, that is there.
1: As I think about the splinter net and the the fracturing of the global internet, obviously the the difference between the Chinese internet and the rest of the global internet is vast. Again, Australia is in a a unique position. You have a different perspective than I do. How should we think about that market, which a lot of companies want to go into and grow, versus how that government treats some of its citizens, how that government treats the flow of information on the internet there, how the government exports technology? I'm just imagining you have a, a much different perspective on it than I do.
2: Uh, I don't know your perspective, but mine is that um, well. First, of all, we don't have engineering in China, and we don't have we have uh, I think some partners in China, but not employees there. And by the so, way,
1: by perspective, I just meant I live in the United States.
2: Like, <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's all I meant. And uh, from a China perspective, it's interesting to see like they're they're a rising superpower, right? Like the US was you know, a rising superpower after the Second World War, um, where they've you know prior to that they didn't really have global dominance, and China is trying to do that themselves as well. Um, however, you know, the, their values are so different from what we've come to see as, you know, liberal democracy, Western values, where, you know, kind of rule of war, you know, from a democratically elected perspective is, is really respected, um, competition, other things, just very different set of cultural values. I'm sure they would look at ours and, and say we're weird, um, but there's a lot of things I think that mean it's going to be very difficult to harmonize these two worldviews over time. And so from a commerce perspective, you um, almost every CEO says, oh, I'll make China work. You know, I'll be the first CEO to ever make China work. And I think there's enough data points now to show that it is near on impossible for someone outside of China to, you know, to go in and make it work, whether it's, you know, intellectual property theft or it's just the rule of war over there or um, just other things that you don't understand culturally about it. And so um, I feel... um, optimistic that sort of like those two worldviews can coexist, but I don't think they're going to merge anytime soon. And so when I look at global growth markets, I don't put China as something that's going to be, you know, 20% or 30% of Alaskan's revenue, even though there's a lot of stuff that we do that would hugely benefit from the way we work. I think even some of the cultural aspects around collaboration and being open and transparent would make business work uh, better there. Um, It's not a big area of investment compared to, say, India, um, which has, you know, largely English-speaking population um, and also a much more solid rule of law, I think those types of economies have bigger growth prospects for technology companies like ours.
1: Let me wrap up by asking just a, a big step back question. You and Mike, you're two kids, you went through a, a workshop program, you start shipping a product, you realize your support product is more interesting than the, the thing that you were trying to do. This is like a classic founder story, right? You, like, you pivot, you, you're, you two people. You start a business, you pivot into the tool you made to solve your own problem. That grows into Atlassian. Atlassian is a gigantic global company. Now you are more aware of California privacy law than even I am. Like That's a great journey. But it all depended on you being able to address a global market from the beginning without in 2001, 2002, the pressure of multiple regulatory regimes and privacy regimes and all that happening. Is that still possible for two founders in Australia now or two founders somewhere else?
2: I think it's still possible to to do that. I think it's still possible to build a global company from anywhere in the world. And that's great for everyone. Uh, It's it's why you see huge amounts of venture capital plowed into really early companies because basically the size of the market now is way, way, way bigger than we ever perceived it to be um, because there's billions of people on the internet and all of them could potentially use your product. Uh, so I think that that is still very possible. Um, I wanna just keep the balloon up uh, as a big warning that uh, we shouldn't take that for granted. And it didn't exist 30 or 40 years ago, like there was multinationals, but they really got there over, uh, it took them 50 years to become a multinational. Whereas these days you can be multinational from day one. I I don't wanna take that for granted because it could go away really, really quickly. And I think we would all uh, lose out in that scenario as consumers. All right. Well, Scott,
1: you've given me far more time of tomorrow than I anticipated. Thank you so much for being on Decoder.
2: No, I thank you. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you again to Scott Farquhar for taking the time to talk today and thank you all for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of the show. You can email us at decoder at the verge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at reckless on Twitter. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone, Sophie Erickson, and Andrew Marino. Our music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. We'll see you next time. First thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to do list starts.